This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today I've got a special guest on the podcast. His name is Ryan Burge. So Ryan is a pastor, writer, and he has his PhD in political science, and he is a professor at Eastern Illinois University. He's also a pastor of a small Baptist church in that area as well. But he wrote this amazing book called The Nuns, Where They Came From, who they are, and where they are going. And that's NUNS, N-O-N-E-S. And so this book does a deep statistical dive into the increasing number of Americans who have no religious affiliation whatsoever. So by now, you've likely heard of the NUNS. But again, this guy is giving a bunch of data and a bunch of graphs in this book to explain where did they come from? Where, where did this trend start? Like, how did we get to where we are? What do we do moving forward? And this is an interesting perspective because, again, he's a social scientist and a pastor. So he can see see things for what they are biblically and the, theologically, but he can also see them for what they are from a statistical standpoint. And it's really, really interesting. Guys, I really enjoyed this conversation with him because we took a lot of quotes out of his book. We tried to create a narrative here for kind of, hey, how did we get to the point where we are right now? Because a lot of people are lamenting the fact that there's a, a tremendous rise of religiously unaffiliated people in the United States, but they don't know how that happened and they certainly don't know what to do about it. So we dig into that on this podcast. You're going to make sure you stick around to the end where we get into some other really interesting subjects in terms of what we're talking about here. But guys, I'm not going to keep them from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Ryan Burge, welcome to Undaunted Life of Man's podcast. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk to you. I mean, you've done some really, really interesting work that we're going to dig into here in just a second. But the the I guess the best place to start would be you're both a pastor and a poli-sci professor. Okay, so the world of faith and the world of academia, can you just brief us, briefly give me an idea of how the heck that happened? I don't even know at this point. Okay, you know, think, there you go. Like everyone goes, that's so weird. But if, you, if you've lived it your entire life, it's not weird. It's just normal for you, right? So I was, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I needed a job. And so I took a job as a youth pastor at a, at a church about half an hour from where I grew up because I basically just needed income for the summer. The summer three-month internship turned into a three-year thing. So I was youth pastor for three years there. And then when I went on to graduate school, I needed a job again. And I thought, well, the pastoring thing is there's jobs there to be had. And so I started at one church for a year, and then I quit that job. And then another church called me and asked me if I'd come there. And I've been there for 15 years now. So it's just always been part of my – ever since I was 20 years old, it's always just been part of what I do. And it just seems very normal to me. And, you know, it actually helps. I think being a social scientist helps the pastoring side. I think being a pastor helps the social science side. I think they both complement each other. I think they're very, very similar in a lot of ways because your job is to talk and be interesting and, and, and encourage people and all those things. So, you know, it, it's it's I don't know anything else. So for me, it just seems like day to day life. Yeah, I think it's a bit of an issue, too, when people think that the world of faith and the world of academia can't mix. Obviously, the same thing with the world of faith and the world of science can't mix. That doesn't make a lot of sense if you spend any time thinking about it. But the main thing that I want to spend the bulk of our time talking about today is a book that you wrote called The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. And that's nuns, N-O-N-E-S. Everyone has to spell it every time they talk about it. So two-part question to really kick this off. Who are the nuns? And I guess for you personally, why did you find it so interesting to write an entire book about them? Yeah. So the nuns for me are people, when we ask them what their religion is, they say they're atheist, agnostic, or nothing in particular. Basically, they say they're they're none. They don't have any religious affiliation. They're not Jewish, Hindu, Buddhist, Mormon, Protestant, Catholic, or anything like that. They say they have no religious affiliation. And the genesis of the book, which in the in the introduction, I talk about this tweet I sent. Um, 
And uh, in 2019, the uh, General Social Survey just come out with their newest data from 2018. And everyone, all my friends were running all these numbers and posting all these graphs. And I was like, I know the graph I want to post. It's about religion. <clears throat> and luckily, I have all this code because I'm like the keeper of the code for all this stuff for whatever silly reason. So I got home. I run this graph and I see this 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 shift. And I see that the nuns now are the largest, are the same size as as, as Catholics or evangelicals. So they're tied for the largest religious group in America for the first time. And I send this tweet out thinking it's going to get like two two likes and it's just going to disappear in the internet ether as things do. And, you know, 15 minutes later, I looked down at my phone and I've had like 35 retweets. And then an hour later, it was 100. And then the next morning, it was 300. And then eventually it gets retweeted like 1,500 times. And everyone wants to talk to me about it. Every news outlet in America, it seems like, called me in the next you know week or 10 days. CNN, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Daily Mail, the New York Post. Um, I was on C-SPAN on Easter morning. I mean, it just went on and on and on. And all of a sudden, you know, it was like in a, oh, the front page of Reddit. It made the front page of Reddit and got 71,000 upvotes. So it was just everywhere. I had people from high school who I hadn't talked to in 20 years. been like, I saw you on this thing or that thing. So, you know, it became like this, this thing. And I was like, wow, if I want to write a book, why would I write a book about something that I care about? Why would I not write a book about what other people care about? And obviously, you know, the, the demand was there and the interest was there. And I know that I have a specific set of skills in terms of translating data into, you know, understandable ways for the average person. So I thought, well, why not take an idea people are already interested in? Why not use the tools I already have in my toolbox? And why not just write a book about that? Because that's obviously what people want to talk about. Yeah, I think it's really important as well. And guys, just as a quick aside, you're going to have to get a copy of this book. It's in the show notes. You can kind of dig into it yourself because you do a lot of kind of data-driven stuff. There's a lot of graphs. We're not going to be able to get into everything, but you do kind of look at this narrative where you're digging in to who the nuns are, where they've come from. And you spend some time talking about the general social survey, which you actually just mentioned, which is basically a survey, which correct me if I'm wrong, it hasn't changed since the seventies. It's been the same survey since that time period. So it was a very reliable source. Is that kind of the, the gist of the GSS? Yes, until 2021, then they had to go online and the numbers are all screwed up. So that's okay. a whole different story. But the number of Protestants dropped 10% in three years somehow because they went from in-person to online. But from 1972 to 2018, they asked the exact same questions in the exact same way. So it's really the only way that we have to track religion in America over a long period of time. And now it's a whole different story. Right. It's a little bit better than a snap poll on Twitter. So uh, in chapter one of the book, it's called, What Does the American Religious Landscape Look Like? And there's only, I think, five chapters to this book. So you spend a lot of time. There's really, really meaty content in each chapter. Now, I realize that this question is going to be overly broad, but can you at least give us the 30,000 foot view as to what the religious landscape of America looks like right now? Yeah. So we, we break it down into seven groups. Okay. So Christians are broken down into four different groups. Um, evangelical Protestants, which I think we all know an evangelical Protestant is at this point. You know, they're very um, conservative politically and religiously, believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God, literal reading of the Bible, you know, turn or burn, you know, hellfire and brimstone, those kind of people. They're about 22, 23% of the population. The other kind of Protestant we don't talk about as much is called mainline Protestant. Those are United Methodist, Episcopalians, United Church of Christ. Those are people who are like, yeah, we believe in Jesus, but I'm not really sure about heaven and hell. And, you know, much more modern. They have female pastors. A lot of them are open and affirming to LGBT people. Um, they used to be 30% of America in 1975 and now they're 10% of America. So like that, that flavor of American Christianity is basically uh, going to die in the next 10, 15, 20 years. And then there's black Protestants. And we put those in a separate category because they're just so fundamentally different than like white evangelicals. Interestingly enough, black Protestants have very similar views of the Bible as white evangelicals do, but their view of politics could not be more different. 
Um, 90% of black Protestants vote for the Democrat. 80% of white evangelicals vote for the Republican. So they're just politically completely different. And then there's Catholics. Um, Catholics are relatively stable, share the population between 20 and 25%. The issue with Catholics is it's become a cultural identifier more than it's become a religious identifier. So in 1972, 55% of Catholics said they went to mass every week. And today it's 25%. So, you know, the numbers, the top line number looks fine, but underneath the surface, there's a lot of things changing for Catholics. They're just not as devout as they used to be. And then we have a couple different groups at the bottom. We have Jews. We have other religious groups, which are everything from Jedis to Muslims to Buddhists, the groups that are so small that are hard to really get a good number on. And then obviously the nuns. And like we talked about, the nuns were 20, you know, they were 5% of America. Now they're 21, 22% of America. And actually by some estimates are even higher than that. They're probably 30 or 35% of America. So those are the big seven groups. Really the only change over time is mainline Protestants have gone from 30% to 10%. And then the nuns have gone from 5% to 25%. Everything else has been relatively stable over the last 40 years. Well, I want to talk a little bit about that because you talk about from, you know, 1972 to 2018, you talk about the nuns going from around 5% to around 25%. But you you say in your book that there is, you kind of ask yourself the easy question, which is, so where have all the nuns come from? And the easy answer is mainline Protestant Christianity. I want to get your idea. And again, I know you like to deal in data, not quite as much in conjecture, but as to kind of why that is, because from the outside looking in, because I'm not a mainline Protestant Christian, it's almost because like when you keep reading cultural things into scripture, as opposed to just reading scripture, maybe that doesn't do very well. At least that would be, you know, what the Reformed Baptists would say. But if you had to say, why has there been such a stark decline over the last several decades in, in mainline, mainline Protestantism? That's a great question. That's actually the million dollar question in my in my world. And so like the second, I have another book coming out in March called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. But my third book is really going to be <clears throat> trying to understand like what happened in the middle of American religion, like what happened to moderate Christians in America and, you know, really a book about religious polarization that kind of couples with all the political polarization stuff that we talk about. I think we forget the fact that religion has also been polarized. I think for a lot of it, it was a push and a pull factor. You know, uh, if you grew up mainline, all your evangelical friends told you you weren't a real Christian because you didn't believe in all the things that they did. And so for a lot of them, they're like, well, if I'm not a real Christian, I'm not going to go then. You know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sick of being kind of criticized and ridiculed for not believing everything you believe. But on the other side, the nuns see you as still being too conservative for them. Right. You still believe in, you know, Sky Fairy and Jesus and all that kind of stuff. So you're too liberal for your evangelical friends. You're too conservative for your nun friends. So Mm. at some point you feel like compelled to pick a side. And obviously for most of them, the side was the nuns because the nuns don't require you to do anything. Right. And for a lot of mainline Protestants, they don't really they don't really accede to that kind of very conservative theology and very conservative worldview politically. So the nuns were more liberal. And so they're like, well, I'm more like a, a nun politically and socially. So I'm going to become a nun because just honestly, it's easier to be a nun than, a, than to be an evangelical in the 21st century, especially. Right. The, the subject of politics has already come up so much in the first eight or nine minutes of the show. We'll get more into that here in just a second. But I did want to dig into something that you did in chapter two that I felt was really interesting. You give us some ideas as to why the data are trending the way that they are. And so you talk about secularization, social desirability bias, the internet, politics, socialization, loss of trust, and changes in family structure. But you point to three kind of main ones, secularization, politics, and the internet as the main reasons. So I want to dig into secularization real quick, because in chapter two, you show this graph with this quote below it. And here's the quote. Notice that the trend line is high on the left side and the graph of of the left side of the graph and low on the right side, which indicates a clear negative relationship between GDP and the importance of religion. Said another way, as a country becomes more economically prosperous, it is less religious. Now, the, the knee-jerk reaction for me, Ryan, is because if you're not having to pray, give us this day our daily bread, 
if you're not having to do that, if you're not worried about a tribe on the other you know, side of the hill coming over and, and taking all your women and horses, it makes things a lot easier and you don't feel like you have to rely on this deity of any kind. That's kind of my initial, again, like I said, knee-jerk reaction to it. But why do you think that is, that there is that negative relationship between GDP and the importance of religion? Yeah, so I talk about Max Weber in the book, who's this German sociologist, probably the most important social scientist to ever live, and he talks about secularization theory, and he actually uses this term called, he uses a German term because he's German, but you can translate it as demagication, which I think is a really great translation, right? So Weber says the more science you have, the less magic you need, right? So like think about the 1800s, if it doesn't rain for a year and all your crops die and you, you, know, you die of starvation, you're like, why is it not raining? Well, because God's mad at us. Or your wife gets, you know, sick, coughs twice and dies three days later. Why, you know, why did my wife die? Because God's mad at us. Everything becomes cosmic, right? Everything becomes, becomes spiritual. With science, you understand why your wife died. You got an infection. You understand why it's not raining because of weather patterns, climatology, and all those things. So what Weber says is the more science you have, the less God you need. So as a country becomes more educated and more economically prosperous, it's going to find natural explanations for things that, that, that do not require the supernatural explanations for things. So... But the thing is, the United States is a huge outlier on this. You know, in that graph, if the United States was on the trend line, 0% of Americans would say religion is very important. 0%. And instead, it's like 48%. So we are still, even though we're a less religious say than we were 30 or 40 years ago, we're still much more religious than we should be if we followed the model, let's say, in Western Europe. When I think as well, one thing that you'll hear a lot about trends is in sub-Saharan Africa, how Christianity is exploding, but it's almost from these cultures where things like magical things, otherworldly things, they're like, oh, someone was raised from the dead. Yeah, totally makes sense. Whereas like, you know, a skeptical American intellectual is going to be like, yeah, that's not going to happen because of science and all these different explanations that they can give. But politics, I feel like is, is a main through point of this book. And so you talk about that in this chapter as well. And, you know, you point this out in your book, but a lot of hay has been made and people have made a good amount of money writing scathing books about the fact that 81% of white evangelicals voted for Trump in 2016 during the presidential election time period. They're ignoring some of the obvious reasons for that. The most basic data show that, you know, the exact same percentage essentially voted for Romney and McCain in the previous election cycles. And those two didn't have the moral issues uh, that Trump did as far as we can tell. But there's a key quote from this section that I wanted to get you to give me a little bit more, um, a little bit more context around. A liberal is twice as likely as a moderate and four times more likely than a political conservative to be unaffiliated. And you're talking about being religiously unaffiliated. Now, I try to make sure to, to take away all the boogeyman stuff where it's like, oh, all liberals are this or all atheists think this way because obviously there, there's a whole lot of color. And I don't mean that you know in terms of race. There's a whole lot of color to who a person is and how they got to be the way that they are. But help me understand, because it seems in my head, I'm like, well, of course, a liberal is twice as likely as a moderate and four times more likely than a politically conservative to be unaffiliated. But why do you think it is? It's because we were searching for a unified self, I think is the answer, right? We're looking, what we're trying to do is figure out how to get everything in our identity to align with a, with a central cause. So, mm-hmm. you know, we used to see people, what we call them cross pressured, where they had like some things that pushed them to the right and some things that pushed them to the left, right? Let's say that you're, you know, you're an environmentalist, but you're also a hunter. So, you know, you're strong 2A, but you're also strong on the environment. Like, what do you do? Who do you vote for? Because the parties are obviously opposed on those kind of issues, right? Let's say you're, you're and this actually is becoming less of a thing, but union membership used to make you a Democrat because Democrats support unions very strongly. Mm-hmm. But let's say you live in rural America, which is very white, very, you know, very conservative now. We, we're seeing people, they're throwing off these cross-pressured identities now, and they're lining up behind the same identity. And so what we're seeing is, and actually I had a piece, I wrote a piece in the New York Times a couple of weeks ago, 
the headline was, you know, the, the, the top line finding is evangelicals are actually growing. But that's actually probably bad news for evangelicals because if you dig into the data, what you see is the share of Americans who self-identify as evangelicals is going up. But there are two reasons why it's going up. One is it's because people who are conservative politically but never go to church are identified as evangelical now because they like the fusion of the two ideas. But the other thing that's really surprising is we're seeing the rise of evangelical Jews, evangelical Muslims, evangelical Catholics. They're taking on that moniker too because they're very religious and they're politically conservative. So what they see is the word evangelical now is not a specific type of theology. It's encompassing of a conservative. I'm very religious and I'm politically conservative. That's how people are seeing it in the world now. So what we're seeing is now if I'm a liberal and I go to a conservative church, what we see in the data is more and more people are leaving their church based on their politics. So now they're not going to be going to a church anymore because they understand that church is going to be much more right wing. Reality is we people are really good at this. They sort themselves out insanely well when it comes to their friends, their church, the organizations they're a part of, where they live geographically, right? Whether it be urban, suburban, rural, people know where their people are and want to associate with those people. And so they create this unified and unfortunately mm. they're unifying behind a political identity on both sides as opposed to maybe an other identity in terms of religious identity. So now we're seeing this sorting mechanism happen. And now to be conservative is to be religious, to be liberal is to be not religious. And it didn't used to be that way 30 or 40 years ago, but today it's definitely that way. Well, I'm busting up my interview a little bit here, but I want to make sure I, I was going to ask this later, but I want to ask this now because I think it's pertinent to something that you said. One thing that I see in my read of people that are liberally minded, and, and again, I'm not saying classically liberal, maybe I mean more so leftist, like more so on that side where everything is politics. Is it that they're trading in the altar of God for the altar of politics? And and we can talk about conservatives doing the same, but you know, you made the point about liberals being way more likely to be unaffiliated. It's like, okay, you can leave that behind, but you're going to make a religion out of supporting Bernie Sanders or supporting the squad or supporting whatever your issue is, being pro-choice or being open borders immigration. Is that what what's happened? Is that just kind of the nefarious underbelly of this that we're now, or I say we, a lot of people are worshiping at the altar of religion? Or sorry, I politics. Think, yeah, no, I think I think you're right. If you look at the most politically active group in America today, are atheists and agnostics are right behind them. They're incredibly politically. For instance, in 2020, half of atheists donated money to a candidate or campaign, which is insane because in the general population, it, it's never more than 20 percent, right? So they are very. I think for a lot of atheists, um, politics becomes their their thing that ties them together and becomes their their purpose and their meaning. And if you actually look at politics. A lot of things that we do politically actually come from religious backgrounds, like conventions come back from denominational meetings, right? Stump speeches or sermons. So there's so much that you can tie those two things together. It's just that atheist agnostics are going to strip all the religiosity off of it, but kept all the other stuff because they like the meetings. They like the rallies. They like the rah-rah and the, and the feel-good and the donating money, right? You donate to a church. You donate to a candidate. There's not a whole lot of difference between those two things, really, if you think about it. What we're seeing is that people are trying to make meaning out of their lives, and unfortunately, for many of them, politics is how they make meaning. And I think we can all admit that that's probably a bad way to make meaning because politics is irredeemable. <laughs> I think we all can recognize there's no salvation to be found in politics. I never feel good about politics anymore. I only feel bad or worse, depending on what's going on. And I think the reality is that now, one caveat to that, though, there's a third group of nuns. There's atheist agnostics. There's a third group called nothing in particular. Okay. Mm -hmm. Three in five nuns are nothing in particular. 22% of Americans are nothing in particular. 
and they are not atheists and they are not agnostics because they do not engage in politics hardly at all below the national average. So they're just floating in social, cultural, religious and political space. They've got nothing to kind of guide them like atheists and agnostics do. So when I think about the nuns, I'm not as worried about atheists and agnostics as I am as about nothing in particular group for a whole bunch of societal reasons. Yeah, and you talk about later in the book how the nothing in particular is that's the fastest growing religious group in the United States, which is funny to say because they're irreligious. But I, again, I think we're 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 not onto something. People have been talking about this forever. They're worshiping at the altar of politics, typically left leaning politics, but also the altar of sports, celebrity, entertainment, drugs, alcohol, video games, Netflix. Like they're just they're they're worshiping at the altars of these other things. They're worshiping at the altar of what's the next show that I'm going to binge watch, but. I'm going to get back on track here because we talked about secularization, politics, and the other thing we talked about was the internet. And you used a phrase that I had never heard before called the spiral of silence. Now, mm -hmm. you explained it well, so I obviously understood what it was, but what is the spiral of silence? And I guess, why is that pertinent to the discussion of the nuns? Yeah, so the spiral of silence is the idea that if you're in a group of people who have a different viewpoint than you do, your natural inclination is to shut up. Because you don't want to be, it goes back to like evolutionary biology, right? Like you don't want to be singled out in a pack because if you're singled out, you're going to die, right? You need that pack to protect you. Let's say you're out in the tundra, you know, 10,000 years ago. So what we do, we still do it naturally. You're in a group of people. They all start talking about politics. Let's say they say things that are very, maybe extremely left wing or extremely right wing. And you're not that way. You're not going to challenge that because you don't want to go against the dominant viewpoint. And so what people understand is that silence is complicity. So if you're not challenging them, they assume that you agree with them and it just makes it, it, it the spiral gets tighter and tighter and tighter and worse and worse because the more crazy things they say, the less willing you are to speak up. So the more marginalized you are. So in reality, what happens in that situation is you don't stick around because you realize you're not with your people. You're going to leave. And then the people that are left over are just an echo chamber reinforcing the crazy on both sides without anyone walking in and going, whoa, 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 that's too far. Don't believe that. Don't say that. We can't do that. And I think what's happened in American life is people have sorted themselves out in such a way that now all we have left are echo chambers on every side and no one comes in and checks you and says, wait, what about this other side? So now what you do is you demonize the other side. You look at the worst version of the other side, not the real version of the other side. And it just makes the divides between us and them even larger. Well, you're strawmanning these other sides, but aside from the 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 actual reason, which is personal cowardice, why most people don't actually stand up and say things, I did a, an episode a few weeks ago uh, talking about cancel culture, like real cancel culture, where it's like, okay, I'm going to get your business, you know, out of here. I'm going to run you out of town. Like actual cancel culture, we're going to kick you off of social media. Is that the main reason why you think? people, especially on the right, are unwilling to kind of speak their mind? Because I feel like, especially if you're a gospel-believing conservative, let's say, and you feel like you've got the truth because you have the gospel, like you have the end of the story, right? Why would you not want to say that? Why would you not want to speak that into culture? But I think people are actually terrified, especially if you're a conservative Christian who's really nice and you kind of go along to get along, you don't like to ruffle feathers, right? That you're just going to kind of let it bull over you at some point. Is that kind of a good way to think about it? I think if evangelicals are in a tough spot, right? Because they believe if you don't believe what they believe, you're, you're going to hell. hell. Exactly. Yeah. Like there's no there's no other alternative, but they also understand and I think they instinctually understand a lot of things they believe are way out of the mainstream culture in terms of 
you know, sinfulness and sexuality and gender identity and all those things and women leadership way out of step on those things from the general public. So they're always walking this line, right? Between like, I want to preach the gospel and fidelity to my understanding of the Bible, but also understanding if I do do that, it's going to further isolate me from the rest of society. So mm-hmm. evangelicals have this difficult thing. And I think I actually think it's getting worse because their views of sexuality and, and, and gender identity have not changed over time. Yet culture has shifted fairly, I mean, incredibly significantly to the left over the last 10 or 15. Think about this. In 2004, there were um, 13 ballot initiatives in 13 different states to make marriage between one man and one woman. They passed in all 13 states, including Oregon. The liberal bastion of Oregon is still passed. 12 years later, gay marriage is the law of the land, right? So things shifted so quickly on that. And evangelicals are sort of reeling from that, I think, still, because they still want to engage the culture. But where they've staked out a position has not moved, but the culture has moved further away from them. So their ability to evangelize is getting more and more difficult. So now they have two choices. One, they can change their views, which a lot of them won't because they they want fidelity to their understanding of scripture, or they can say, okay, we're a happy remnant over here, right? We're going to just keep our little insular culture over here and not try to evangelize anymore. I think actually a lot of the battles you see in religion is how open you want to be versus how closed you want to be. And I think evangelicals are fighting that fight right now because a lot of them are thinking, who am I talking to when I go on social media? Am I talking to my people or am I talking to those people? And I think no one really agrees on who they're talking to at this point. Right. And and I think they're ignoring Jesus's words when he's talking about us being salt and light because salt can't preserve anything if it's lost to saltiness. But I feel like a lot of churches as well became obsessed with relevance. They wanted to be relevant. There's even a a stupid Christian magazine called Relevant. Like basically all they want to do, they want the clothes that their, their worship pastors to wear to be relevant. They want all the graphics to be relevant. And this is not, you know, a commercial for people making sure that their church service is ugly and people wear, you know, ill-fitting suits. But it's just like when you worship at the altar of relevance and not godliness, it kind of creates a little bit of this issue. I'm sure we could spend the rest of our time talking about that, but we've got a lot more stuff to cover. Um, One thing that you talked about that I find was, that I found very interesting is that the highest percentage of the religiously affiliated groups are people with postgraduate educations. Okay. And as soon as I read that section of the book, it reminded me of this Malcolm Muggeridge quote. Um, you know, he was an agnostic for most of his life until he became a Christian later in life. So this, this quote, you know, it's a few sentences long, but I want to read it to you because I think it goes into our conversation. This is a quote from Malcolm Muggeridge. So the final conclusion would surely be that whereas other civilizations have been brought down by attacks of barbarians from without, Ours had the unique distinction of training its own destroyers as its own educational institutions and then providing them with facilities for propagating their destructive ideology far and wide, all at the public expense. Thus did Western man decide to abolish himself, creating his own boredom out of his own affluence, his own vulnerability out of his own strength, his own impotence out of his own erotomania, himself blowing the trumpet that brought the walls of his city tumbling down and having convinced himself that he too or he was too numerous, labored with pill and scalpel and syringe to make himself fewer. This is the key quote of the quote. Until at last, having educated himself into imbecility and polluted and drugged himself into stupefaction, he kneeled over a wary, battered old brontosaurus and became extinct. As soon as I read about that that high, you know, postgraduate degree, which I have, and most of these people being being that, I thought having educated themselves into imbecility. Is this like what you were talking about earlier, Ryan, where these modern cultures they have scientific explanations for seemingly everything that we're just basically it's the the scientific god of the gaps, if you will, that we can explain everything with evolution and science. We don't actually need anything ethereal. 
I think that's that's the issue is people thought that science would solve all our problems. You know, there's this great book by Karen Armstrong called The Case for God. And in 1900, science was convinced we solved these like 10 or 12 problems. We would solve all the problems of the universe. Like we would have it all figured out. We're 100 years later. We've, we've solved none of those problems. And we actually have less meaning in some ways. Right. I think the problem is, is that we think that science and, and religion are in conflict with each other. And I think they're obviously painted that way oftentimes, right? Like you either believe the earth was created in six days or you believe in evolution. Like, listen, you can believe in both things that God exists, but also that evolution exists at the same time. They don't contradict each other that much. I think what we try to do is we try to make science explain spiritual problems and we try to make God explain science problems, right? There are two different ways to understand this world. And what you actually see among the educated people is the educated people are actually going to church. They're doing it for a really interesting reason. They're doing it more for the social reason than they are for the theological reason, which I think that's something that people who don't have as much education, I think, forget is they're falling behind American life because they're not social. They're not joining clubs and groups. A story I love to tell is I was at a church one time, very liturgical, old school church. They did what's called prayers of the people, which is where the pastor will come up and say, you know, who has a prayer request? And we'll all bow our heads and someone will just say something from the audience. Like, could you please pray for me? I have cancer. And we all say, Lord, your mercy, hear our prayer. Well, this 21-year-old kid in the back, He's there with his wife and his kid. And he said, can you all pray for me? I lost my job and I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent at the end of the month. And we said, Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Well, after the service is over, one of the older guys in the congregation owns a small business, comes up to the young man, says, son, you need a job. I can get you a job. And he went and worked for that guy at the at his, his small business, right? I think what we forget about religion is, sure, we can talk about like, you know, ontology and epistemology and all those things. At the end of the day, it's a bunch of people hanging out and supporting each other through the best and the worst of their lives. And I think that's the thing that education has taught me as a social scientist is the value of church, I used to think, was all vertical. But now I understand. Now, vertical still matters. Don't get me wrong. But the horizontal may be just as important. And by cutting ourselves off from those social ties, we're actually hurting ourselves emotionally, financially, spiritually, and, and, and emotionally in every possible way. And we don't see what we don't have. Therefore, we don't know what we're missing. Well, and there's these atheist groups that have tried to create these uh, non-religious churches. I'm sure you've heard about them. And they, they've basically all failed. I, I say all, a lot of them have failed because there's nothing actually holding them together, right? They all kind of dress the same. They all kind of come from the same background. They all kind of believe the same things politically, but there's nothing actually tangible outside of those things to keep them there, to kind of have that. I, and I thought it was interesting. You brought up uh, the science and religion thing again, because Eric Metaxas wrote a great book here recently called Is Atheism Dead? And he spends the overwhelming majority of that book talking about how science was trying to disprove God, but it keeps just proving God. And I think that that's really important for people to realize. And for a lot of Christians, and you know, I've talked about a lot of my shows, so I'll say it again. A lot of Christians are intimidated by science because they think if they go digging into science, then their entire worldview is going to crumble. And I encourage people, no, the number of people, like the number of world-class scientists that believe in, in a creator God that's like integrally involved in what the goings on of humanity is a lot. There's a lot of them. And these people know more than anything. We've got an apologist coming on later this year. That's a, a biologist, but also a Christian apologist. And you're like, how could that possibly happen? But it, it happens all the time. Uh, one thing I did want to go into Ryan in chapter three of your book, you say that you say actually this quote here, thus, both genders are walking away from organized religion, but men are doing so at even higher rates. Okay. So this is a man's podcast. You know, uh, overwhelming majority of our listeners are men. There's a lot of reasons for this, right? There's a lot of reasons why people think this is happening. One of the things that I've said, and I've said even recently on a debate that I did on uh, the unbelievable podcast over in the UK is that men will go where they're needed. And if they go to church and they realize that they're not needed, then they're going to go wherever they want to. 
right? They're, they're going to go wherever they feel like they can give value. And so that may be to their shop. That may be to the shooting range, to the golf course, to the wherever. But from what you've seen and what you've experienced as a pastor and a social scientist, why do you think men are leaving at higher rates than women? Yeah, I think it's because I think the problem with religion, it makes you feel things. You know, like a good religious service is going to make you feel things. And men are culturally trained to not feel things, right? Like we've all been, I was raised in the eighties where it's like, boys don't cry, right? Boys don't feel emotion. It's odd when a, when a, when a man cries, you just kind of turn your eyes, avert your gaze to be spiritual is to be emotionally open, right? To be emotionally available and to work on yourself and understand you don't have it all figured out things that men by and large culturally are not taught, or at least when I was growing up, were not taught to do. <clears throat> the other part is men are not social or less social. We know this social scientifically that men are just less social than women are. They don't hang out with other, other men as much as women hang out with other women. And church is basically a social activity. I know my dad is probably one of the least social people I've ever met. And when he does go to church, he goes, he comes in right before it starts. He sits for the service. And as soon as it's over, he's literally the first person out the back door walking to the parking lot. He does not want to engage with anyone, not have no conversation with anyone, does not want to be involved with anyone. But, so I've done some subsequent analysis looking at like age, like what age men are more likely to be, are more likely to be nuns than women. So when men have kids, like in between the ages of like 25 and 45, they're actually just as likely to be religious as women are. But as soon as those kids grow up and get out of the house, that's where men sort of drift. Like the 55 year old, 65 year old man who's retired. Those are the people I really, really worry about because those men don't have a lot of purpose in terms of work anymore because they're kind of done with their working life. Their kids are out of the house. A lot of them have married for 30 or 40 years. Some have been divorced. They might be single at that point. What do they really have going for them? A lot of them are not choosing to be social in any way. And I think really, if you look at the data, that's a really bad outcome for men. We need to understand that being social is okay. You know, being emotional, being having friends, it's good to have friends. I don't think men are taught that as much. I think women naturally want to have friends and be communicative. Now, obviously, we're speaking in broad generalities here, but you look at the data, sure. that's what you see. There's a huge gender gap in socialization. I think it hurts, it hurts men in a lot of ways. Well, one thing I do want to push back on, because I would agree with most of that, and I've said a lot of that on my show already, but one thing that I would push back and maybe ask even further questions is a lot of people just assume like, oh, men are culturally taught to not have feelings, don't cry, all those things that you've said. You know, I you know, was born in the 80s, and so I kind of heard some of the same things. But if that were true, though, wouldn't older generations, because I've read books by people that linked the, you know, the cultural desire for little boys to be stoic directly to suicide. And it's like an egregious thing to go from there to there in such a short period of time. And if that were true, suicidality with boomers would be way higher than it would be with modern. Because I feel like with modern boys, they're constantly being told to share their feelings. They're be mm -hmm. constantly being told by 98% of their female teachers growing up have emotions, but not those emotions. Those ones are scary. Those have too much testosterone. But is that really it though? I, I know that's a univariate analysis and you get into a ton of problems when you only use univariate analysis. But is it can't just be that because we live in one of the most emotional time periods maybe ever. So I'll tell you a story. My son is yeah. fourth grade. Um, he, a big part of his class is what's called social emotional learning. Now they actually spend time every single day on social emotional issues. And last week they had, he had two days where he came home and he was just quiet and bum. He's not in he's gregarious outgoing kid. And he was not those things. And we try to figure out what's going on. Well, in class, one of the students said that his mom and dad are both in prison. He was not going to see either of them for five or seven years. And all the other kids in the class started crying, you know, because they felt so bad for this kid. And I, I was talking to my wife about it. And I'm like, we never, we never, in school, we never did that. Like, I literally never remember having a moment like that. And then I thought, why are they doing that now? Which I love, by the way. I think every school should be doing social emotional learning. Why are they doing that? And I realized something. 
I think part of it is those kind of conversations used to happen in church. You know, I can't tell you how many times I cried in youth group about God knows what, about my girlfriend or my dog or whatever it is. But these kids are not going to church anymore, right? They're not going to youth group anymore. So they don't have that social emotional outlet they used to have at church. So now school has become like this all-encompassing thing where it's like, we're going to teach you arithmetic and geography and PE, but we're also going to teach you how to be a decent human being and have compassion for your fellow man. I think that's such an interesting shift that like religion has declined, which used to teach us these things. And now we're trying to use other levers to try to bring it back. I'm happy they're doing it, but I'm sad they have to do it, you know? Well, it, Ryan, it's an interesting shift, but I would say potentially a dangerous one. Uh, even here recently, I won't even mention who it was, but a, a prominent business owner here in my city, they were talking about how, you know, their their teenager came back from school and they were they were talking about the, the George Floyd case. Or they were talking about all these kind of re, the, you know, racism topics and all that. And I was like, good grief. Like, did they, did they ever learn math that day? Did they learn English that day? And so part of my struggle with that is these government employees that are teaching your kids that tend to come from one kind of worldview and they're typically feminine, right? Because they're female. These individuals are now having discussions with our kids about these macro world topics, about LGBTQ issues, about, you know, systemic racism, whatever that is, and about all these different things. And, and yet, none of their classes are 100% up to grade level competency. And so that's part of my issue to where it's like, okay, you do emotional learning with this kid. That's great. Can he tie his shoes? Can he spell his name in cursive? Like th those are the things that I'm worried about, but you're, you're right in a way that where the church has abdicated responsibility, the, the vacuum is going to be filled. Like look what happened in Ireland of all places, whenever they allowed abortion, the murder of unborn children to be passed in Ireland, it was because the Catholic church had completely lost their ability to, to influence people in that culture because of, you know, stuff that you talked about with the, with the, you know, sexual abuse scandals and things like that. But man, I just got to tell you, Ryan, like that scares me that we have these teachers, these union teachers teaching our kids about topics that they should have nothing to do with. Am I crazy? I think the problem is it's we 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 used to rely on many forms of meaning in life. And now the government's kind of, you know, taken over. What? And listen, I'm not going to blame the government. I'm going to blame us. Yeah, because the government's when we get, daddy. They're going to act like daddy when we let them, you know? Exactly. If, if you give them that space, they're going to take that space, right? What, rightly or wrongly. But the thing is, society's created that space for them to take. And I think the issue here that I worry about is, and this is what I talk about in the book, is this nothing in particular category scares me to death because, you know, the internet can radicalize you overnight, right? Whether it be on the left or the right. And I always want to recommend, not to, this is a great podcast. I'll recommend another podcast called The Rabbit Hole. It was on New York Times. They interviewed this kid who was, you know, he talks about, I went to college for a couple of years, dropped out because I got in a fight, you know, went home, didn't have much going on for me. Worked at Dairy Queen as a manager, started watching Stefan Molyneux videos on YouTube and got completely radicalized being like anti-woman, anti-black, you know, become racist. But he goes, here's the most fascinating thing. 18 months later, I was a hardcore Bernie Sanders socialist because I got sucked down the YouTube rabbit hole the other direction. Man. Right. So if you don't have any guardrails up, you don't have those educational guardrails, which in college we like, I try to teach you how to think, right? Like show you both sides and say, let's think about this rationally. Let's think about this logically, right? If we don't have those guardrails and then your pastor, your priest, your rabbi can say to you, listen, as a as a Jew, a Christian, we, here's what we believe about the world. Here's our broad view of humanity and life and everything else. If you don't have those guardrails up, guess what? YouTube and the internet can drag you all the way across the spectrum and no one steps in and says, that's too much. That's too far. We don't believe those things here because we believe this thing about people or this thing about humanity or race or gender or whatever it is. The problem is, in a society with no with no institutions, the internet pulls us from one side to the other and no one can step in. And I think, unfortunately, I think 
a lot of times we're seeing radicalization on both the left and the right. It's because they have no people in their lives who stand up and say, whoa, 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 whoa. We don't do that. We, this is my hot take. We need more gatekeepers. We need more people to stand up and say, that's a radical view. Like that's, that's too far gone on both sides to say, we don't believe those things here because otherwise what we get the internet is everyone not only has a voice, they have a megaphone. And unfortunately the internet, the crazy view is what gets the most clicks, likes, retweets, mm. and, and traffic. The moderate view, no one wants to hear about. They want to see the crazy person online, which get, don't get me wrong. I love to see that too, but it also creates like, sort of like a car crash culture that we're in right. where we look at the crazy, not the, and by the way, most people are in the middle. Let's well, not forget that point. Well, Ryan, we like to see it because it's entertaining to us because it's funny. Other people are like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes total sense. But I, I think part of it, and we we definitely don't have enough time left to talk about postmodernism, but I think postmodernism is having a little bit of an issue with that because if everybody's truth is their truth and e of equal importance, then for one guy to stand up and say, yeah, that's stupid. Uh, that That's a really, really dumb idea and we shouldn't do that. It's like, <gasps> Are you violating their truth? How dare you, you bigot? It's kind of that that overwhelming sense that culturally we're going to cancel you because you're telling someone that their lived experience is somehow not as valid as what is true and what is valid. But again, like I said, we can't talk about postmodernism. We only have time for a few more questions. I definitely want to talk about something that you said in chapter five because you make a statement in chapter five that caught me completely off guard and completely odd considering that it came from a pastor. So I want to read this quote here. Mm -hmm. I think it's helpful for people of faith to think about the rise of the nuns in much the same way as globalization. In both cases, the same cold hard fact is true. We cannot stop it. Both waves are only continuing to build in strength and speed. Any efforts to impede them will be futile. Okay, so it seems like you're not really leaving any room for, for the power of God to create a revival of sorts. You, you said, you know, unequivocally, it's gaining strength and speed. There's nothing that you can do to stop it. Now, there's nothing that I can do to stop it. There's nothing that you can do to stop it. But I feel like God could stop it, no? Listen, I'm a social scientist. God is not a variable. You know, like every time I write- variable? Come on, come on, you he's know, a variable. Well, I, but the thing is like we have to, social science has to use explainable factors, right? Like we can't add a, like a God a God coefficient in there, right? So mm -hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm. listen, I'm not opposed to that. We could have a, a, you know, a third grade awakening in America. But I think the reality is, you know, secularization is, there's no laws in social science, but it's, it's about as close as we get to a law, right? If you look at all these other countries, they are much more secular than we are. And I think the reason I wrote that was because for pastors like me, my church was 300 people in the 1960s. It was 95 people in 1996, and now it's 15 people, right? Can I look at myself every day in the mirror and go, it, the, the, the church is smaller because I suck, right? It's my fault. And I did that for a while, right? I really looked at if I preach better, if I do better outreach, if I'm more relevant to use the term we just talked about, mm -hmm. if I'm more relevant, my church is going to grow. I did all those things. I tried all those things and our church did not grow. At some level, we are all, and this is what social science is, at least political science has become much more institutional over the last 20 years, which is we argue that institutions matter more than behavior does because institutions shape behavior. And I think for us, institutionalization means secularization, right? We tried to stop globalization for the last 30 or 40 years. And what have we got? Nothing. More, glo more globalization. More globalization. That's yep. all we got is more globalization. I mean, I talk in the book about Trump went to that plant in Indiana, Maytag plant, and tried to say, we'll give you incentives to stay. They took the incentives. They sent everyone to Mexico. Now they're building robots with the incentive money. You know, so it's like, you cannot stop this thing. Secularization. Now, what I do think about secularization that's interesting is I'm not sure it's people actually leaving religion. I think it's just people more willing to say what they are on surveys, which we didn't even talk about, which I think mm -hmm. people have been lying on surveys for decades now. And secularization has given them permission 
to say what they really think on a survey, which is they're not religious. So what you're really seeing is those people are really just declaring what they already were as opposed to people leaving religion entirely. I think that number is actually a lot smaller than we think it is. So what we're going to be left with is a core of people who are still very religious in America. So secularization is going to wash over them, but not push them out to sea, right? They're still, they're still there. But the reality is American society is changing rapidly. And a lot of things that pastors are doing really won't stem the tide unless it's a supernatural thing, which obviously we can all cry out for revival all we want. It's really not on our timeline, right? It's on God's timeline. And I think a lot of pastors should maybe try to get out of the way a little bit more to allow for God's timeline and to allow for God's providence. Because, you know, I talked about this with John Cooper, the lead singer of Skillet, because he had this he had this uh, viral thing uh, from Facebook where he talked about, hey, let's make pastors uncool again. Because all these pastors, again, they're trying to be relevant, they're trying to be cool, and they're trying to be the point. Right. Look at these uh, amazingly rare Jordans I'm wearing and look at this this great speech that I just gave. And they're, they're not really pointing to the father anymore. But again, I keep getting on all these tangents. Let's get back into what we're supposed to be doing here, Kyle. So here's the thing. And later in chapter five, you had a quote that I absolutely loved. And you mentioned it a little bit earlier. If people were paying attention. But this is a quote. The reality is simply this. Americans used to be Christians simply by default, not because of their belief in the words of the Apostles Creed. Secularization merely gave permission for a lot of people to express who they truly are religiously unaffiliated. Now, I live in Oklahoma. I lived in Oklahoma essentially my entire life, the belt buckle, the Bible belt. You are a Christian by dint of birth, right? You were born here in this red clay. And so, boom, you are a Christian. And a lot of people think that way. They don't believe anything about the gospel. They go to church twice a year, Easter and Christmas, and that is it. So to a degree, I'm glad about this. Because if you are so delusional that you think you're a Christian because you were born in a red state, that's an issue. I think the gospel is going to be, it's going to be difficult to penetrate your, your unreality that you have in your brain. I would much rather say that they're religiously unaffiliated because I feel like that person might be a little bit more logical in terms of the questions that they would ask or the questions that they would need answered in order to kind of open up, you know, who they are to who the reality of Jesus is. Is that kind of, is that how you feel about the subject as well? Because I was actually inspired by that. I wasn't disappointed at all. So I was, I was giving a talk last week in Atlanta to a bunch of church planters, and I said, you know, the made the reality is what we're seeing is the real religious landscape, not the manufactured or the socially desirable religious land. And they all went, oh, like you could hear like an audible sigh come across the congregation, right? right? They're like, whoa, like that makes a lot more sense to me. Like, and it really does make a lot. And in the book I talk about, like the first step in 12 steps, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous is admit you have a problem. And I think for a long time, Christians have kind of floated along on this myth that, that America's a lot more Christian you know, we're 80% Christian, 90% Christian. Reality is we were never that Christian. We've never been that Christian. We are not, that, are not that Christian today. We're actually, I think what we're seeing today is we're actually getting closer to the real number, right, of people who are real true believers. And we're seeing the people who are not culturally Christian, I would say, are now saying they're nuns, right? They're nothing in particular, a lot of them. So now we're faced with the reality as opposed to the, the the smoke and mirrors that we've been seeing for the last 20 or 30 years. But I also think that gives the church a challenge because now, now, I think it actually makes it easier in some ways, though, because now people are willing to say, oh, I'm a nothing in particular. I'm not really religious. When 20 years ago, they would have said they were a Christian and you would have just walked on to the next person. Right. So now you're getting a more honest, transparent answer for them. And when you get a transparent answer, I think it's easier to talk to them as a real human being. They're not trying to tell you what they want you to hear. They're telling you what they're really feeling. And so, I, you know, like the Internet's been awful, but I think that's one thing the Internet's done. It's allowed people to be more confident in who they really are and say what they really are. And I think we're actually getting people to be more honest. Now, now don't have this conversation online because you're going to not, it's not going to be a good conversation. But if you have a face-to-face -face conversation with a person, I think you are honestly going to get a more real conversation today than at any point in the last 50 years 
which even if you're a Christian or not or not a Christian, I think that's a good that's a step forward for us as a society. Well, and Ryan, I don't know of anyone that is vehemently nothing in particular. Right. Like like who, who does that to where it's like, I really am neutral on pepperoni pizza. Right. Like no one like says anything like that before I can deal with neutral. I can deal with lukewarm. So I think about the abortion debate. Cause I, I do get into those discussions quite often. If someone is like, you know, pink hair, crazy face tattoo, like a pro choice, like that person, that's a really, really difficult person to bring them to the center and say, let's have a logical discussion about whether we're actually killing a human being. Where someone that's just like, yeah, I mean, I, I guess a woman should be able to have the right to choose what to do with her own body. When I ask that person, hey, uh, are you sure it's her body or is the entity growing inside her someone separate? Oh, like they're more amenable to these things and they're more able to be swayed because we're speaking true to them, which really goes nicely into the end of your book because you do a lot of, uh, descriptions as to the reality, as to what the data say and, and all those different things. But you do get a little bit into the prescriptions here. So I want to read this quote from the end of your book. So here's my suggestion. Speak truth to them. Preach sound biblical doctrine that cuts across the political spectrum. One of the theological principles that shapes the way I view the world dates back to the Old Testament. It's the concept of the Imago Dei, the understanding that every human being is created in the image and likeness of God. And because of that, every person on earth is deserving of love and respect. It sounds so simple, yet it can be. Yet it can have profound impact on how we think, act, and vote. So I talk about the Imago Day a lot, Ryan. I talk about it in a myriad of different issues. So, like you know, when you're talking about abortion, or when you're talking about murder, you're talking about someone being raped. It's like at that moment you see someone that's being raped on a train car, which happened in Philadelphia a few weeks ago. That's not the time to stand up and preach scripture to that person. Someone's Imago Day. The Imago Day is being violated, and it's your job to stop it. Right. That that's kind of my contention. But the problem, I guess, I have, well, I don't have a problem with it, is you say the word speak truth to them. But again, Ryan, we live in a modern modernity where truth is completely relative. And if you're preaching your truth to somebody, you're bigoted for doing so. So I agree with your sentiment, but how do we operate and how do we do that in this modern context where just doing that makes you bigoted? Yeah, no, I, that's, I, I got asked that the thing last week, right? How do I, how do we church, you know, churches are being defined by what their view is LGBTQ is not about how they serve people around them, right? Because mm-hmm. listen, at the end of the, remember we talked about car crash mentality. It's a car crash mentality, right? We want right. to look for the example of crazy things happening. And even that story of that woman being raped on the subway in Philadelphia, they're like, the initial story was people like watched it happen and didn't do anything about it. The reality is that's not what happened at all. That the story was completely wrong from the beginning, right? But we pick up on these car crash mentality things. And I think when it comes to church, when you see a church discriminate against someone for being gay or transgender or whatever it is, that's what makes the headlines. Unfortunately, and and I think this is something that we we are completely unaware of is how much social safety net in America is is perpetuated by church and by religion of all stripes. Right? There be clothes closets, food pantries, prison ministries, all those things. I think the reality is, and this is like my like my doomsday warning thing is, in the next thirty years, a lot of that safety net is going to crumble away as these churches close. And no one's going to realize it until it's too late how much the church actually did for their local community. So I think a lot of what we have to do when we talk about speaking truth is is saying to people like, listen, I know you want to define us by this belief and that position and and, and this thing over here, but I want you to know that this is all the other things that we do in the community, right? I'm a big big believer in churches need to be better at PR. They need to say like, listen, we're feeding kids, we're, we're clothing kids, we're doing prison ministry, all those things. Now, listen, you can disagree with us on views of Jesus and abortion and whatever else, but you cannot disagree with us that there are hungry kids in our community. That That's what we need to fix, right? So we focus over here. 
Now, listen, there are people who are never going to agree with you on those things. That's the thing about religion. There's this great article by Richard Rorty called Religion as Conversation Stopper. That's what he calls religion. Because if you have a conversation where they say, well, why do you believe that? And if you say, well, God told me so, or the Bible says so, where do you go with the rest of that conversation if the other person doesn't believe in the Bible? You don't go anywhere. It stops the conversation, right? So we have to understand there's an inherent thing about religion that's absolute. And you, you're probably not going to convince the other person to have your worldview. That's okay, but let's focus. We have to. We have to focus on what we have in common, not what we have different. And I think the reality is, for most people, they have a lot more in common than they realize. Maybe not theologically, but in views of social issues, the world around them, they want the same things you want. They just don't worship the same way you worship. Well, and I think the Greg Kokel approach, the, as he described in the book Tactics, is like you're not probably going to get that tear-filled, crumble-to-the-floor conversion experience. Just put a rock in someone's shoe. Right. When I've talked to people that are vehemently pro-choice to go back to the abortion thing, like I, I'm done trying to convince them completely that what their their worldview is completely bankrupt. I'm trying to put a rock in their shoe. I'm going to ask them a question that no one has ever asked them before. And if they're intellectually honest, they're going to have to really reckon with that and deal with it. Now, Ryan, that would have been a great place to leave the interview, but I'm selfish here. I got one more th- quote that I want to get a little bit more context for uh, before yep. we got to get you out of here. There was a quote from, I think, the beginning part of your book. It was this. Just as I wouldn't want one of my political science colleagues to try to explain the evolution of Trinitarian thought in Protestant Christianity, I don't want pastors to try to explain how Karl Marx thought about religion or expound on the implications of internet-based polling. Now, I think the point more so of that was you were talking about internet-based polling because you had these pastors that were doing univariable analysis, looking at a single variable, and then now using it as a jumping off point for a sermon. But for me personally, I want my pastor to explain to me what Karl Marx was thinking. I want my pastor to explain to me what Nietzsche's thoughts did to culture. I want my pastor to do those things because pastors are supposed to be purveyors of truth. And one of my biggest gripes with a lot of pastors in America and even for churches that I've attended is they won't go into the real cultural issues and they leave their flocks confused. So when you do your little TED talk and you sprinkle in some Bible verses that you've taken out of context, that doesn't help me understand how I should think about what happened in Afghanistan when we pulled out. That doesn't help me think about whether or not Black Lives Matter is a sentence or an organization that we should fear. Those are things that I feel like pastors should get into. Am I reading into your quote too far? Is that something that you think pastors should not touch? So here's what I was saying with that. I think the problem is they create they create a, a straw man out of Karl Marx where that's only he's only someone to critique. They don't try to explain the worldview that he was operating in, the culture that he wrote the Communist Manifesto in, and the issues that he was facing in Western Europe in the 1800s, right? I think you use Karl Marx as a bludgeon. You never really think of his ideas worth considering. His ideas, you don't even allow people to consider his ideas. So basically he becomes a totem, as Emil Durkheim would say, a totem for all bad things in the world. When in reality, Karl Marx, I want my people to know about class consciousness, right? I want them to understand that Karl Marx thought that religion was bad. It was the opium of the people. But then I want to say to them, here's why I don't think it's the opium of the people. Right. So he goes from being like a one dimensional straw man character to a real person who had real thoughts that do have value, by the way. Karl Marx thoughts have value and I will still teach them in my class. Now, when I'm done, I have my conservative students walk out and go, you know what? You taught me more about Karl Marx than I'd ever heard in my entire life. And I still think he's an idiot. I'm like, totally fine. That's totally great. But my job, I think what pastors do is when they hear Karl Marx, they think communism, bad, Stalin, Mao, all those things really try to understand Marx for what he was trying to say. And then he's not just a person to attack. 
Karl Marx is a person to understand. And I think that's what a lot of pastors miss is they don't try to understand the social science side of things. They just use him as sort of a, a, a thing to attack against. And I think that's unfair to your congregation because you're not really teaching them anything. You're just teaching them like, you know, like an apologetics class, it was always like, okay, if they say this, then you say that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's not the right way to teach, right? Because you're not really listening to what they're saying to you. You're just waiting to respond. And I think that's what we do a lot of times with these social science characters is we just teach them how to respond to people in our churches. We don't really take them to listen to what they have to say and think about what they're saying. I think that's what I was trying to say in that passage is yeah. p- pastors don't take Karl Marx seriously enough. It's easy to teach people shorthand. It's hard to teach people a language. And so the shorthand is communism bad, which I agree yep. with, you know, Mao, Stalin, uh, Lenin, bad, right? So I, I agree with all those things. And so that is a message that you can easily get off. It's bumper sticker theology for people yes. or bumper sticker philosophy. Those are easy to wrap your minds around. But last year I kind of was feeling that a little bit the same, Ryan, like I read the communist manifesto because I was like, all right, uh, I need to make sure I can read this guy, read his thoughts and all that in the context in which he wrote it. And, you know, you start reading off the beginning, you're like, some of this sounds okay. And then you read to the end, you're like, oh my gosh, this is absolutely crazy towns. This dude is literally in, he, he's a fruit basket at this point. But you know what? We've got a lot of different areas in this podcast. We might need to come back and do one just on Karl Marx so we can talk a little bit and go tit for tat on him. But Ryan, that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? Uh, read the book, The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, where they're going. And I have a new book coming out in March called 20 Myths about religion and politics in America. Pre-order available on Amazon right now. You can follow me on Twitter at Ryan Burge. All I do is post graphs all day. RyanBurge.net is my personal website. You can find all my contact info. It's very easily findable online. We're going to have all that information for you in the show notes, and we're probably going to have you back on here very, very soon to talk about that next book. But Ryan Burge, thank you for coming on on Daunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Ryan Burge. But before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost at Undaunted Life. Our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And specifically, we do that with content like this podcast. It helps you forge spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. I've got an Amazon link to his book, The Nuns, where they came from, who they are, and where they are going. I've got a link to where you can pre-order his new book, which we're going to be talking about with him here in a couple of months. It's called 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America. I've also got a link to his website and his Twitter page. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it. Wherever you're listening to this, please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive review. If you want to come speak live at your event or on your podcast, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. You can also follow us on Instagram and TikTok and like us on Facebook. You can check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we want to also thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cutting the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah. Judah.